Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. I first encountered the NerdWriter YouTube video a few years ago, and I saw this amazing video, How Louis C.K. Tells a Joke. It broke down one of Louis C.K.'s iconic jokes almost word by word, and it was so smart and so dead on accurate. And it was only a few minutes long, but it was just fascinating to, A, reawaken my joy for this one joke, and B, explain the joke at a very deep level. The NerdWriter also has videos like how Donald Trump answers a question. How did Darth Vader become so iconic? Every aspect of pop culture. Why did Bob Dylan win a Nobel Prize? Norm MacDonald is a comic genius. Sherlock had a film thought. On and on. He's done hundreds of videos. And now he has a book with some of the most fascinating essays about pop culture and the way he thinks. The book's called Escape into Meaning, Essays on Superman, public benches, and other obsessions. And by the way, the nerd writer's real name is Evan Pushak. And I don't know what else to say. Check out the nerd writer YouTube channel, pre-order Escape into Meaning on Amazon, and listen to him on the podcast right now. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Where are you, Evan? Uh, I'm in Barcelona. It is 6.15. How long have you guys been married? Been married since 2019. And we actually came here on our honeymoon. Came back for the summer after our honeymoon and then went through the whole visa process and booked a flight, got accepted, and arrived in Spain on March 13th, 2020, which is the day they locked down the country. And for you, though... That was fine. I mean, you could you could do YouTube videos from anywhere and about any topic. I mean, you live kind of the ideal life. You live the life I want to live. <laughs> Basically, you talk <laughs> about your favorite subjects, which happen to overlap quite a bit with my favorite subjects. And you do this deep meta-analysis in like five to 15 minutes on each topic, roughly. My first video that I saw from you was how Louis C.K. tells a joke. And I thought it was just brilliant. You broke down every part of his Monopoly joke. And that was in 2017, so five and a half years ago, and it got 3 million views. I just love it. I watched it like 20 times. Thank you so much. Why did you pick that particular joke? With a lot of these things, I'm trying to find the intersection of something I really like. So that joke I thought was brilliant. And then it's also short enough to cover it in 
the the period that you mentioned, five to 15 minutes or around seven, eight minutes, comedians do similar things with a lot of their material. This one just sort of, it was packaged so nicely and so succinctly that I thought, oh, I can do this in a nerd writer video format. Then it was just a matter of going into myself, trying to figure out why it was funny to me, and then going into the language word by word and trying to figure out how is it working on a textual level. So how did that joke feel to you? Because you analyze it very well. And I think for someone who's not a comedian, it really describes the process almost of how Louis C.K. comes up with a joke. I mean, there's additional things, how he's using his, his voice and his facial expressions and things like that, and how he's performing it, which you don't necessarily get into, but you analyze the language and the text so well. So the joke is uh, how he's playing Monopoly with his kids, and that's a difficult experience for these kids. Like Monopoly is a dark game. Like you have to tell your kids, and I'm not, I'm not doing the joke, I'm just describing it. You have to tell your kids basically, honey, I'm about to take all of your money and all your property, and that doesn't even begin to cover what you owe me. Oh, no, 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 you're not in the game anymore. You're done. It's just me and your sister. Now the game is over for you. You're broke. And just the way he does it is, it's a very funny joke. And then your analysis of it, you know, takes it that extra length of understanding why this is funny, why it's interesting, why it's relevant. Well, one thing that I love about stand-up comedians, especially, and I talk about Seinfeld in the book and his stand-up, is that I personally have an obsession with people who can articulate ideas really well in whatever medium they're using. And stand-up comedians are just special because one, they have to be funny, but even more than that, they have to be intelligible the first time around. And when you read something that you really love, some writer that's really connecting with you and you feel like it's in your own head, you can reread the paragraph. If you don't get it right away, you can go back and do it. But for a stand-up comedian, they have to get it right the first time around. If you're not following what they're saying, if you're not with them at every step, the joke's just going to fail. Yeah, it has to be super tight. Like there can't be yeah. a wasted word. There can't be a wasted facial expression. Like yeah. Louis C.K. probably had before him that joke, let's say, 500 times because he practices it over the year and then he does a special. And so that particular joke, he'd probably done close to 500 times before he really got it right, good enough for the special. Absolutely. I mean, all these comedians are just sort of A-B testing every word of a joke through all their club sets, through, you know, every, every performance they do, they're trying to figure it out. And when they get that joke right, it is like this diamond of an idea. And we connect with writers, we connect with other articulators of experience, but comedians connect with a larger section of the population because they have to be understood and everybody's looking for a laugh. And so that's why you get a lot of this sort of philosophy in comedy. It's why, you, it's why people really, really connect to their favorite comedians because when they're good, they're speaking the same thing that a writer does. They're speaking what's in your head 
in a lucid way. And that is really powerful. Then add on to that, that it's a laugh, that it's comedic and it's a pleasurable experience and an emotional experience. The big emotion of a laugh almost ensures that it's going to stick in your memory because that's the things that we remember, the emotional things. So comedians are just, you know, powerful isn't the right word, but they do connect with a much larger group of people than writers, I think. Well, think about it. Like with the Louis C.K. joke you point out, and, and I don't mean to hone in so much on this. We're going to talk about other topics, of course, but the joke's funny because he's playing his little kid and he's disappointing her so much. And you point out how much he's emphasizing how much he's disappointing her. And so that right away is like almost like a shocking thing. Like it's a truth and there's some shock value to it. But then you go a second layer deeper in your analysis and, and what's really dark about the joke, which really relates to a, a broader group of people than just people who know what Monopoly is, is that he's taking away this, the homes uh, and property of his daughter. <laughs> and we all, I've had a home taken away from me. It's a really, you know, in, in real life, not in a game. Like people could relate to the fear that now his daughter is perhaps experiencing for the first time of property really being taken away from you because of some failure you've had in life. And, you know, analyzing that part, that deeper level that makes it both scary and funny at the same time. I mean, and just like in your book, Escape Into Meaning, you talk about Seinfeld giving a speech at the Clio Awards, which is the awards for the advertising industry. And he basically points out this truth, which is that they all probably feel proud about lying to people in such a way that it makes people buy dumb things. Yes. And they all laugh at it. And we don't really know why they're laughing at it. I mean, on the one hand, he's using his comedic skills to, to make them laugh. On the other hand, maybe they're uncomfortable. On the other hand, it's a little bit, it's kind of funny. And there's also this dark truth to it that, you know, that's what the ad agency is. And anybody who's listening to that speech knows it's true and they all just sort of buy into it as a society. I like how in all of your videos, you take that next level of figuring out what is really going on here beneath the surface? Is he just telling a joke or is he hitting on some truth that is really also disturbing at the same time? Well, the next, next level of the Seinfeld Clio Award acceptance speak, which was really like the key for me understanding so much of his stand-up comedy and perspective, is that not only does he say these people are innocents out of hard-won earnings by selling them useless, misrepresented products, he then goes on to say, that's fine because the brief happiness we get between what he says, between the purchase and getting the crappy product. So the, the happiness, little dopamine hit you get when you purchase whatever you saw on that infomercial or whatever, and the time when you get the product and then are disappointed by it is actually good enough. Like life is made up of those little brief moments of happiness. It's not like the deep happiness of like a strong relationship or, you know, having purpose in your life. But the larger comment that he's making is that our culture and capitalism or whatever, it enforces these kinds of weird cognitive dissonances where the advertisers know they're taking advantage of people, but they're making money for it. And now they're awarding themselves. The people who are buying it know they're being taken advantage of, but 
they're getting something that they think they want, but they might not want it later. But these emotions, these feelings are just as valid as all the other things we feel in life that are big and small. And they get kind of glossed over or pushed aside when people talk very righteously about the, the true happinesses of life or the true bad things that people do. There's this whole middle layer of experience that we're all just kind of living. And it's maybe the majority of our experience. And that's where Seinfeld lives. He lives in that middle ground. Yeah, that, that's so interesting because like you compare him, for instance, to John Oliver, who's a great comedian, a great stand-up comedian, and also has a, yeah. a TV show. John Oliver, um, he'll take a... a a big subject, quote, and I'm, I'm putting big subject in quotes. Uh, he'll take a big subject like private prisons and make a bunch of jokes about the private prison industry. And we appreciate it. He takes big topics and tells jokes about it. But with Seinfeld, what you're pointing out, and even with Louis C.K., is there's kind of these everyday experiences we have where there's a bridge between seeing the ad and buying the product where on that bridge, there's there's this dopamine happiness. Yeah. Like we know deep down, we're getting a bad product. Like the advertising is lying to some extent. The, yeah. the car doesn't come with the pretty girl or the horse running side by side with it all the time. But this image and this idea that we're going to maybe have that experience that keeps us going. Or, or with Louis C.K., there's a pleasure to playing Monopoly. It's a game, but part of the pleasure is kind of it's a safe way to to deal with this really dark experience of losing all your money and losing property. And it seems like you are really fascinated by these bridges between what's happening and the real emotions underneath that drive our response. If I'm sort of describing your process correctly. You are, you are, because we're laughing and in the case of, you know, other other kind of writers or whoever is expressing something to, we're laughing or responding to a recognition that's deep in there somewhere. We make ourselves feel bad and people make us feel bad rightly for, you know, buying iPhones because, you know, they're made in China by labor that doesn't live up to the standards of what we think is right. But we're all, we all still own the iPhone, you know, and we are not bad people, but that layer of experience where so much of our lives is happening between the deep happinesses of life and the sort of <laughs> the bad things that we do is where we live. And no one really articulates that. You know, we talk about it in regular life, but, you know, when we have conversations or when we chat, we're a mess. We're not really, like, great articulators. I certainly am not. But when you get it, like, crystal clear from a comedian, Seinfeld or Louis C.K. or whoever, you know, that awakens a recognition in us. And, yeah, that is what I'm interested in. You know, like, why do we laugh or why do we connect with this or that thing? Or, and, and you know, you don't, obviously, you don't just talk about comedians you know, you have uh, a video that got 10 million views. You did it seven years ago. How Donald Trump answers a question. Now, obviously, that probably showed up for a lot of people in search, uh, yeah. you know, search engines. I mean, maybe a lot of for a lot of people, this was their first exposure to you was watching this video. But 
What's going on there? First off, how does Donald Trump answer a question? I mean, you made this video in December 2015, right in the beginning of his presidential campaign. Like we didn't know he had he had 30 opponents in the, for the Republican nomination at this point, or 18 oh, opponents. Yeah. Sorry, and so we had no idea. We thought he, he had an outlier chance to win, and I say we, the whole all society. So, you know, with, with 18 opponents, everybody's an outlier. So, obviously, your video is almost prophetic here that. I mean, you didn't you didn't make a video. How does Jeb Bush answer a question? You made a video. How does Donald Trump answer a question? So, what was going on there? Like, what fascinated you about how he answered questions, and and what can we learn from it? It's funny to think back on that time now, um, but I was racing to get that video out because I was sure by the time it went live that he would be out. You know, and so I was like, I I need to. This is not going to be relevant if I post it a week later or two weeks later. So the video was prophetic, but you weren't. <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah. I was, you know, like everybody, I I had I had no clue. But what I did see was that he was connecting with people for some reason, and that he also had this very sort of huckstery way of talking that felt like stream of consciousness. And I was just wondering what is actually going on here at the level of like speech and language construction. And so again, I found that answer that he gave on Jimmy Kimmel, similar to the joke. It was like, it was short enough for me to like look at all of it. And I found a couple things. I found that he used, you know, shorter words, words that, that are lower in reading level so that there are that more larger group of people can understand them. I found that he was putting the emphasis word at the end of sentences to create a kind of feeling and tone that ran throughout. Let me give examples because I'll read part of So he's talking to Jimmy Kimmel about yeah. the problem of immigration. And he says things like, well, look, we have people coming into our country that are looking to do tremendous harm. So that's to your point. Like he, ha he has the emotional He has words. hard at the end of the sentence. Right. And, and tremendous, like emphasizes it. Like it's, yeah. it's almost like, like a child's word, like tremendous, yeah. you know, nothing is really tremendous. Which he uses uh, so much. He uses that word so much. Right. Like, like nine 11 was tremendous, but like whatever he's complaining about here wasn't really that tremendous, but he, 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 you're right. He says there is tremendous hatred out there, or he says other people are going to die. We have to get down to the problem and so on. And so you're right. He, I didn't never notice that before. He does put it at the end of a sentence. And it's, I think, really important to point out that I do not believe he understands what he's doing. I think that- And that's he, been a subject of, of debate. That's been a, certainly a subject of debate. And, it's in, and you can, anyone can disagree with that. But I really believe that, how should I put this? I think language, language kind of happens when we're not- really thinking through it, we speak according to rhythms that sort of already exist in the language. And he is just practiced in this kind of, like I say, huckstery kind of speech. And when you listen to him, you can sort of tell that he's like, he's maybe two words or three words, if that, ahead of himself. Like he doesn't really understand what the next five sentences are going to be, but he understands the rhythm of the language he's trying to speak. And so it's like that old thing about a car in the dark. You can't see all the way to your destination, but 
the headlights can show you 50 feet in front of you, but that's enough to get you all the way there. You know, that, that's sort of what he's doing. He's like driving in this car at night. He can see four or five words ahead of him. He understands like the rhythm of this like really Northeast New York huckstery language. And he's just plowing forward. And what's coming out of it are these patterns. I think the patterns are emerging from just the feelings and experience that he's had. I don't attribute any greater sort of manipulation, at least on a language level, to Donald Trump. But also you point out something really important, which is, you know, and I've, I've written about this before, well, the, the Flesher-Kincaid score, the FK score, which is takes a piece of text and tells you what grade level this text was written at. And you point out that if you take the text of his answers to Jimmy Kimmel, it's at a fourth grade reading level. And if you take a Bernie Sanders response, it's at like a 10th grade reading level. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, this doesn't mean people are stupid and you have to talk down to their level. This no. is like a fundamental fact about writing. Like Old Man in the Sea, which is the book that arguably won Ernest Hemingway the, the Nobel Prize, is written at a fifth grade level. Like great books are always written at somewhere between a fourth and sixth grade level, no matter you know what the audience is. And you know, usually poorly written books or like academic papers, for instance, are written at a much higher level. And it's and it's it's very useful to to understand what the FK score is and and yeah. essentially dumb down your writing to make it more receptive to people. Like use more one syllable words, don't use fancy words. And so he does a lot of that. And you also point out. He, he says these things like tremendous harm, regardless of what the facts are, because people have a tendency to believe what they hear. It's just a normal part of the brain. It's a survival method. So people don't assume he's, he's lying. Maybe he doesn't think he's lying, but <laughs> he plays with the truth by exaggerating a lot of things. Well, he has one gift in terms of language, which is that he's really good at not... Uh, doing what I'm doing right now, which is, you know, stuttering or, or getting tripped up on himself. Like he's got this ability to just continue forward like a train saying words that make sentences that might not be grammatically correct, but it, it doesn't feel like he's unsure of what he's saying. It gives you a sense of confidence. And so when you partner what you were saying, like, people believe what they hear just naturally as like an evolutionary thing with the fact that he's giving all the signals of somebody who's confident, which is not like tripping up, stuttering, all these things that a lot of people do that I do all the time. You know, it, it makes for a potent combination. Like a lot of these things make for a potent combination. And clearly he had success with it. I don't attribute that all his success to that. But if he wasn't able to do those specific types of things with language, there's no way he would have made it as far as he did. You know, and 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 again, this is not political. We we would, you know, I would no, love to all. answer questions like Donald Trump because he's so persuasive. People listen to him. He stands out. It's a valuable skill that he has, and clearly he's used it to great success. Again, not, this is not a political statement. It's it's interesting to analyze these things. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb 
has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You've built an entire career out of taking these almost pop culture moments, and Donald Trump is pop culture. Louis C.K. obviously is pop culture. Seinfeld's pop culture. You've taken these pop culture moments and kind of given depth to them 
did YouTube videos about it. And the, the great thing about doing a YouTube video is we get to watch Louis CK do his joke and then you analyze them. So we feel good understanding these things at a deeper level. And you've built, this is what you do for your life. This is the rest of your life. Now you're going to be doing these. Uh, yeah, I mean, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, it is a great job. What, what was the first video that like went over the top? <sighs> I'm trying to think about that. It was around 2015. I had done, started in 2011. I had done about four or five, four or four and a half years of weekly videos without anyone really watching. And so consistency is important. You were doing these videos yeah, regardless of who was watching. I think time is important. I mean, th that's really the only factor. I mean, I, if you believe what you're doing is good, you just have to give it the time it deserves. And in, in my case, it took five years. But I was young. I was in my early 20s. So I had that motivation to do it. I think it was probably around the time when I started doing uh, videos on movies more that um, the show started to take off. And it's what you were just saying, which is the thing that clicked in my head was that I, I read a lot of film criticism and a lot of it's amazing. But I always had this problem reading film stuff is that I just wanted to see the film like while they were talking about it. And so I'll just pull it up on my computer and have the text there and I'll look back and forth and look back and forth. And it, it's not the idea, it didn't feel like an ideal way to understand that thing. And so I had seen a video from a, another YouTuber called Chris Stuckman where he was sort of picking apart an old Denis Villeneuve movie called Enemy. I thought, oh, I could do something like that. And as soon as I analyzed a movie in a visual medium, it all sort of clicked a little bit for me where I was like, wow, this is much more immersive, engaging, and immediate, like you were saying, than written criticism of film. So maybe there is something to this, like analyzing visual media in a visual medium. Then I started looking at paintings and it was the same type of thing. I could manipulate a painting, go into it, isolate a part of it, isolate a certain color. And then all of a sudden it's like this way more immersive experience with the work of art um, than if you were just reading a book about Da Vinci or whoever. And those things can be great, but this just had an immediacy that I felt was really vital and interesting. And that's, I think that's really when people started to pick up on the show and start sharing it. And then it, it started growing from there. Do you ever have any rights issues? Like you, like when you have an, a scene from Star Wars or a scene from Spider-Man or Louis C.K., is there ever any rights issues? Because you're showing the video that someone paid for. Yeah, I mean, well, there were issues for sure, but especially at the beginning, there were lots of issues. I mean, all the things that I do on the show fall under copyright fair use. And I am careful to make sure that's the case. And it just involves like making sure that you're actually transforming the work in an analytical or educational way and that you're not showing B-roll for the sake of B-roll. You're not like, you know, taking away the market of the other thing. It's got to be something new. But in the early days when I was doing this, YouTube was not great at identifying or solving that issue. And so I would get a lot of a content ID from YouTube or DMCA request. And it was not unique to me. All of us who did this kind of stuff on YouTube were dealing with waves and waves of this. And it was, it was really frustrating because once you get a copyright, you can only get three copyright strikes on your channel. And if you get three, your channel is deleted. 
And so wow. once you get the copyright strike, you have to appeal it through YouTube's system, and then it goes through the stage, and then they will restore, they will restore the video uh, and take away the strike if they found it is, in fact, fair use. But for that whole period, which could take a month or months, you still have the strike on your channel. So if, if enough of these build up while you're appealing them, it could be an issue. And people had serious issues with that. Since then, it, it's gotten sort of much, much better. And I haven't had those kinds of issues in the last like three or four years. Not, not much anyway. Well, let's talk about the, the Star Wars one, for instance, because you always bring up interesting things like, you know, you, you point out how the trilogy is six hours and so many minutes, but, but Darth Vader, who's like the cent, it turns out is the central character of everything is only on for 33 minutes in the original trilogy. That was just another case of wanting to understand the cultural impact of Darth Vader being so huge and then actually looking at the seconds he's on screen. Yeah, like in the first movie, he's on for eight minutes, um, you know, in a two-hour movie. Yeah. And then the second movie, he's on 11 minutes. And then the third movie, he's on for 13 minutes. And arguably, the movie's about him. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it's, it, it is a matter of, you know, how they emphasize him, how they light him, how the story references him while he's not on screen that gives him his power and the little amount of time actually works in the favor of him becoming iconic because it's not really getting to know him deeply which i think was probably an issue that the prequels had is that it was all about anakin skywalker and darth vader and then the character becomes more human but less iconic in some cases that's good in some cases that's what you want in the case of Darth Vader, this like larger than life villain, I think it probably took away from the impact he had on audiences. That video is an example of something I do in a lot of the videos, which is that I just want to know why is this the case? You said that I have a great career. It is a great career because if I have these like things needling in my head, I have this platform where I can just explore them. And really, the videos, the Nerdwriter videos, are for me. It, it, you know, when I start the video, it's not like I, I know why Darth Vader is impactful, or I know why this joke is so good, or I know why Donald Trump answers a question. I just have a, like, a question in my head. And then the way I work out things is through stories and through expressing it, in the case of the book and writing, but in the Nerdwriter and videos. And by the end, it's like, I've taught myself this thing and I'm just going to put it online to see if anyone else is interested in going on that journey with me. And by the way, it's, it's not easy. Like, like I, I, I've done a little bit like what you've done, but I've done it with writing. So I've written essays or articles about, for instance, how Eminem in the movie eight mile uses kind of the elements of persuasion when doing his, the final rap battle, or I've written about the infamous Coke commercial. I'd like to buy the world a Coke. I've, so I've done a lot of my own pop culture stuff, but in writing and even the ones that have gone somewhat viral, even the articles that have gone somewhat viral, I've tried at one point to translate them into video and sort of emulate what you've done. And 
it goes nowhere. Like you have a particular way of doing it that maybe it took time to develop, but you have a very concise way of doing it and, and feels very natural and flowing. And like, how long does it take you to do one video? Um, it depends. So the, the longest part of the process is the idea phase, which is trying to figure out what the video is going to actually be. Because I try to conceptualize, not, not knowing like what it's all going to, what the answers is to the questions I'm asking is one thing, but I do try to conceptualize, okay, what is the question? Because I do want people to understand that from the headline uh, before they go in, which I think makes a lot of difference on whether or not they click. Um, I don't always succeed at that, but it is something I'm thinking about. So what is the like concise question that I want to ask myself or explore? And then there's the research period, and that probably takes a week or a couple weeks where I'm just reading everything I can or watching everything I mm. can on the subject. And what usually happens is that a structure, I've been doing this enough now, that a structure of a video starts to kind of congeal in my head. Then the scripting the scripting, it probably takes a few days. The editing takes another few days, but the editing is like, those are like 12-hour days. That is just a lot of very minute work that goes in with the voiceover part of it, which I'm obsessive about and take way too much time on the voiceover. It is probably not worth it, but I, I'm a perfectionist in that. No, it is worth it because that's how, you know, that's how you sound sincere and legit as opposed to it being feeling scripted or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, that's really what I'm trying to like, I, I can't, I can't always con like control the tone that I want. And so I have to do it sometimes 50 times until I hear that tone that I know is right for that moment in the video. And so that, that's a whole sometimes annoying, but very crucial process. And then and then I post it. So the whole thing altogether can take two weeks, but there might have been, you know, weeks of ideating before that, that, I, that doesn't really count in terms of the production of the video, but is the longest part of the process. Like how many videos have you put out in the past year? I do eight a year and I've been doing eight to 10 for the last four years. You know, when I was doing those videos from 2011 to 2015 and nobody was watching, you know, I was doing it weekly. And then after people started paying attention, I was doing, I continue to do it weekly, but that I was upping the production quality. Cause that's, you know, like you're saying it, it, for me it is an iterative process, which is the beauty of YouTube um, is that it doesn't have to be perfect. And so you can always fix your mistakes next time. It's hard to feel that way now, but in the beginning it did. Um, now I feel like a little more responsibility to be perfect every time, which is not the right way to think, but I don't really know how to get out of that mindset now. Then I found that I had hit a maximum of production quality that I could achieve in a week. And so that just started a process of reducing the number of videos. And adding to that, I've just been lucky that you know, the show has been successful for the last few years. And so I don't have to do as many videos to make a living for myself. So I do. Right. Because there's still, the backlog is still generating views. Yeah. Um, like every month, how many views come from videos that are older than a year? I have, percentage wise. I have no idea. I have no idea. I haven't looked at analytics in like five years. 
<laughs> you just get a check every month and it's all good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's another privilege of uh, of being a little bit established is, you know, um, you don't really have, I probably should, but I, I'm just one of those people who just wants to make the next thing and I never really look at that. It's funny that Donald Trump one is actually probably your most popular one with 10 million views. It is, it is, it is. That, that's interesting. And so, uh, well, some of these videos I haven't seen, so let me just ask you, how did Humphrey Bogart become a legend? Bogart is fascinating, and I love making that video because I watched every, basically almost every Humphrey Bogart movie, and or at least parts of them. And in the 40s, he was not getting cast as a lead in anything. And he must have done, he must have done 30 or 40 movies. In, he's such an unusual he actor, is. but like, but like when I see, you know, some of his, his movies, I always feel more manly after seeing one of his movies, even yes. though he's not like the, the, you know, picture of what you think of as, you know, today's perfect man. No. And, and that was, that was sort of the key is that in, at the end of the forties, he, he got a role that allowed him to play the sort of grizzled, pained, slightly obsessed guy. And then he got the Maltese Falcon, which was the beginning, it's like the beginning of film noir. And then he got Casablanca, which is like the most iconic movie ever, where he play, he again iterates on that role of the pain, grizzled, ma like masculine, but also obsessive. And the reason I found that he has lasted where a lot of those golden age stars didn't was that he really only played one character and where a lot of people went for a range he went for depth and he kept digging on this same guy and like the the results were uh, incredible and then kind of the apotheosis is the treasure of the sierra madre where he's like this insane guy but that imprinted on the public's mind in a way that has lasted for a century. A lot of those other actors who were huge, including the ones that got all the roles that he went up for in the 40s that took those lead roles, we don't know their names, but we all know Humphrey Bogart's name because he played something that we could all understand. He didn't deviate from it much which many consider to be like the thing that makes an actor great is their range. And in a lot of cases it is, but for him, it was playing the same type, but going deep on that type. And it's a type though, that we all aspire to be. It's like, he's, he, you know, is always very, very smart and clever and kind of sees the BS in everything around him. But he's also got some dark secret yes. that makes him not, uh, reach his full potential as a person until perhaps the end of the movie. Exactly. I mean, he's 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 witty like those noir detect. Like he sort of invented. Like watching the Maltese Falcon is like, it's like listening to Rubber Soul, where it's it, it, you're listening to Help, and then you're thinking, and then you listen to Rubber Soul, and you're thinking, how did they? Wh where was the jump here? Like, there's something here that didn't exist before that's new in the world, and it's incredible. Watching the Maltese Falcon, it's like you could watch all his roles from the 40s and then all of a sudden it's this discontinuous thing that's fully formed. 
And it's the classic detective noir hero who's witty and all these things. But the reason that, like you're saying, that he lasted is because there is vulnerability deep in there. And it comes out in his face at the end of the Maltese Falcon when he's telling the other characters the darkness in his soul and he's seen all this darkness and you just see it. It's the same like when he approaches uh, Ingrid Bergman in, in Casablanca and he sees her for the first time since you know they, they split during the war. It's like his eyes just twitch and you get it all from that. You just get it all from that and it's that deep vulnerability. So he's got the hard exterior, the vulnerable center. And what do the other actors not have? Well, I mean, listen, I, I love so many actors. So there are lots of classic great actors from that period. I mean, I would love to do, uh, my favorite actor of all time is Jimmy Stewart. So I would really love to do a video on Jimmy Stewart. Um, but, you know, the, the big three from that era of men were Jimmy Stewart, Cary Grant, and, and Bogart. And they're all very different. You know, Jimmy Stewart's yeah. like the, the guy next door. Cary Grant's like the, the, the Casanova, um, super smooth guy. And uh, Bogart is the grizzled, pained guy. And they all had their own things. Um, but it's an interesting question about the, all the guys that got forgotten by time. <laughs> why, why is that the case? I think in some cases it's just luck, but I think it would maybe be worth looking deeper into. I love the TV show Succession and you have a video Succession, say what you mean. Yes. And actually it looks like I started watching this video for some reason I didn't finish it. I maybe my maybe my wife walked into the room or something and I changed the video. But uh what are you writing about there? Or what are you what are you video doing a video on there? It was a similar topic for me which is always sort of on my mind which was language. And anybody who watches Succession knows that it's like um poetic insults in the most hilarious way, you know? And so I started the idea, the writing and researching, thinking, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something on the insults or the comedy of it. But then I started to see, like, it, it, another one of these instances where I just started watching the show back and I started to see that a lot of the show was about language that doesn't work or people essentially lying or finding complicated ways to say nothing. That was really the key. There was, there was the, um, there was the quote from the first or second episode, which is that truth is complicated airflow or something, or speech is complicated airflow. And what is the key to that show is the trauma that the children feel. Right, because they, because they don't know. There's like a mystery, which is who's going to succeed. Yeah, the old the father, and he just wraps it all around in mystery. And and like you say, he doesn't really say anything. No, he he he's essentially abused and traumatized them by never being sincere with them, and it brings together the kind of business speak the jargony jargony business speak that means nothing that we're all familiar with with a much more insidious form of nothing speech that the dad practices on the children to keep them on the line but to never really commit to anything 
sincerely. And th they, have, they are just living in a state of pure confusion, not knowing what the dad actually feels about them, which is a really difficult place for a child to be, even a grown-up child. And then they, they do that themselves onto their loved ones. And so it, right, and onto each other. Yeah, on, onto each other. It is a generational thing that, that has been infected on the family. And I'm sure higher up in the family too, like the, the grandfather, I'm sure, was like that to, to Logan Roy. But you know, that, that was a really interesting thread that I saw in the show. And there, it, like, for example, gas, I talk about gaslighting. Um, what gaslighting essentially is, is like presenting a meaning to somebody and then ripping that meaning away from them and not giving them the chance or letting them understand what is real. And so you start to question what reality is. And there are all these examples of gaslighting in the show. It's just another example of complicatedly saying nothing. Yeah. And they're all, everybody's swimming in it. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's health care by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use him for now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. 
Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. It's interesting how in a lot of these videos and in your book as well, Escape Into Meaning, how you always find like this underlying, you know, we're all just enjoying the show or enjoying the story, but there's this underlying subcommunication that you basically start to interpret in these videos or these essays. Like just a very simple example, when you write about Superman in the book, you talk about something which has been written before, how Clark Kent is not the real person and then he's secretly Superman. Superman's the real, that's who he is. He's Superman. That's what uh, Bill says in Kill Bill. That is the critique that I'm arguing against in the essay. So the essay is called Superman is Clark Kent. And my, <laughs> I'm such a nerd about Superman, but I uh, basically make the argument that the core of the character in the dichotomy between Superman and Clark Kent is Clark. And that when stories fail to understand that or fail to give proper due to the Clark side of the character, then they tend to be boring and forgettable. Why do you think it is, is that the stories that don't include more Clark. And I even remember one time there was a comic that was just about called Clark Kent because they had a lot of spinoffs of, of the comic, like in the seventies. Yeah. But, uh, There's so many, there were so many versions. Yeah. So why do you think it is that the stories that don't include more, I guess because Superman is unreal and Clark Kent, we all relate to. Well, I mean, I, th the key, I think the key to the character is the critique of Superman by many people is that he's boring, that he's too vanilla, he's too perfect, essentially, and that there is no credible threat to him because he is so powerful. And so a few years after they created Superman in 1938, future creators had to invent kryptonite because that was something that could hurt him. And what I say in the essay is that what we find interesting in characters is internal conflict and internal vulnerability. And kryptonite externalizes vulnerability in a way that's just completely blunt and boring. Mm. Superman as a hero is too vanilla and too perfect. But because he's invulnerable to physical harm doesn't mean he's invulnerable to emotion or psychological issues. And that's where the Clark side of it comes in. What's more is that because he's so perfect physically, he's actually the perfect vessel to talk about emotional issues. A great Superman story shouldn't turn on what physical might can do, but all the things it can't. And that doesn't mean there shouldn't be giant fights and crazy powers and stuff. Obviously, that's what we all come to comic books and superheroes for. But way too few Superman stories 
have focused on the emotional side of the character and that side belongs to Clark Kent. You know, that is what that that is really who he is. When he wakes up, he is an emotional psychological being like for all even though he's an alien for all intents and purposes a human being. And then he can do all these amazing things, but he can't just convince somebody to love him. You know, he can't convince the world to accept him. And those things are things he shares with us. The other thing too is that he's got this amazing job as a journalist, right? Which they never do anything but pay lip service to, right? You get the noisy, bustling newsrooms, the loud, you know, you get Perry White, who's like this loud editor, and you get all the lip service paid to that. But journalists, like Superman can stop, I say in the essay, Superman could stop a burning building from collapsing. But Clark Kent, the journalist, could go after the contracting company that took bribes and used cheaper cladding that made, you know, that made, um, that made the building burn. You know? And so that's the Clark side. You know, as a journalist, he can do so many things that he can't as a hero. That's never explored. It's never explored in the movie. I really want to write a, a script. And <laughs> actually, that sounds great. You should you should do like a TV series, Clark Kent, journalist. Well, I mean, basically, the you know the the they say in the book that the thing that really got me interested in Superman was Smallville, the show, right? Which was a great. I actually thought that was a great show because he was like in love with Lois and Lana and you know these different people, and he did have trouble emotionally dealing with the fact that you know he had to pretend to be weaker, and so they wouldn't like him as much. Yes, and he, he had. To, he was also just discovering his powers. He was discovering who he was. He didn't really know who he was. That was the that was the Superman. That is the Superman text that spent the most time on Clark Kent ever, just because it ran so long. It had all that time to do it, and it focused on you know, it, it, like I like I say in the book, it wasn't a perfect show by any means. It was it, there was a funny quote from um, Jeopardy. There was a Jeopardy clue, which was this. WB show is basically Dawson's Creek with superpowers, which it really was. I mean, it was like a it was like a paint by numbers teen drama in a lot of ways, but also it explored the uh, the psychological side of being an alien, being so powerful, of not not feeling like you belong, of being in love, and all these things that we all share with Superman. The Lois and Clark. TV show from the 90s did a similar thing. You know, it wasn't a great show, but it, it it explored the relationships in ways that, you know, the recent Superman movies really haven't. I think there's a new show out right now on HBO Max, yeah. uh, Superman and Lois. Yeah. And I that, haven't watched it yet. Is it, is it good? I watched a few and yeah, it is. I mean, and that's, they're taking the perspective of Superman and Lois as, as parents. Um, and so you get to see all the difficulties with Superman being a dad and, and just the things we would have being parents but I think it also, again, it gets caught up in, you know, there is this kind of race to be the most action-packed and big story and end-of-the-world problems that all these superhero things get wrapped up in, which, you know, takes a little bit away from it. But what can you do with superheroes? Yeah, exactly. Um, so the, the final video that I want to discuss, I, I wonder if you remember it, is why is Norm MacDonald a comic genius? Because, and the reason I, I love this video is I love Norm MacDonald. I think he is a comic genius. And yet I can't figure out why. His, because his, his 
it's almost his funniest jokes are his worst jokes. His is the jokes that aren't really structured like, you know, stand, you know, modern stand-up comedy jokes. The, but he's just funny the way he, you know, he's like clearly a smart guy, and he's almost playing a character when you see him in on on TV. You know, before he passed away recently. But why do you think he's a, a comic genius? First of all, rest in peace. We uh, we miss him. Yeah. Um, he just has, you know, when I talk about like being obsessed with articulation, um, a lot of that is language, and Norm is obviously a genius with language in terms of its in terms of economical use and word choice and stuff like that, but. When it comes to performers specifically, you know, he they they have to give off a they have to give off a feeling and they have to give off a tone as well because you're watching them do it and a, a character and and, and the, the stand up norm is a character of norm. I obviously didn't know him, but you know, the the stage version of norm brings you to this place. And like you say, like you can't quite put your finger on what is working here, but there is work going on behind the scenes to create that feeling. And then he layers over top of that these what I like would like to call like accumulative jokes, right? Some so he's telling a long story. Sometimes he'll he'll say a throwaway joke, but keep coming back to it. And the first time you hear it. It's not like laugh out loud funny, but by the end of a set or the end of a 15 minute story in which he's, he's referenced it like five or six times, it accumulates in your mind into a level of almost like hysteria. You know, it's like, it's like, um, it's like uncontrollable laughter. I think Steve Martin said that there's the two kinds of laughs. There's the knowing laugh, the laugh where you understand what the joke is and you laugh and you go, oh, yeah, that's funny. You know, you like you agree that it's funny, you know. But then there's the kind of laugh you have when you're with your friends and you're being idiots and you you just don't understand why you're laughing and you're and, and it comes over you like a kind of hysteria. Yeah, that's funny because that because Steve Martin has that in his own original stand-up from the 70s. Yeah, that's that's what he was that, that's what he was trying to do. Like he took out the punchlines and the one-liners from his set back in the day and tried to create that feeling. Norm does the same thing, but in a different way. It builds something up in you to the point where you are laughing that reflexive laugh, that laugh that you don't 100% intellectually understand, but is more enjoyable. And that is no accident. Yeah, it's a it's it, it's so interesting to and all all of this analysis you do is really fascinating. And again, I first was exposed to your videos when I watched the, um, you know, how does Louis C.K. tell a joke, which I just thought was was brilliant. And again, like I've tried to do these types of videos, they're not easy to do. Like you do them very well. I I like for instance, you have a video about all along the Watchtower and why Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize. I wrote an article about that song and why he won the Nobel prize, but I would not be able to do it as a video. Like you've, like you've done it. And, um, I really uh, appreciate your videos. They're, they're entertaining. They're informative. I feel smarter after watching them. You give me a lot of food for thought. 
the same thing, the same exact thing with your book, Escape into Meaning, uh, essays on Superman, public benches and other obsessions. You know, I could talk forever about these topics. You do so many videos about my favorite topics, so I really appreciate it. And you do videos about music, art, comedy, movies, comic books, so so much Trump and politics, so many uh, interesting topics. So Evan Pushak, thanks so much for what you do. I highly recommend everyone check out the book, Escape Into Meaning, and also your YouTube channel, The Nerd Writer. Thanks once again for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for everything you said. I really appreciate it. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please, please, I am begging you, subscribe to this podcast. I'm going to use some of Trump's techniques that we just talked about. This is a tremendous podcast. People have stopped me in the street and said, this is terrific. You have the best podcast they've ever seen. Oh, that I didn't quite end on a uh, superlative. But anyway, it would be tremendous if you subscribe to this podcast. Thank you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER.